right, shall we uh, get started here? I want to uh, welcome you to the Cato Institute. My name is Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is your host today. We're here to talk about a case that will be argued before the Supreme Court tomorrow morning, McDonald v. Chicago. And it is, one might say, the second act in the Second Amendment uh, series that began a year ago in the Heller decision in which the court for the first time decided that the right to keep and bear arms, uh, which is discussed in the Second Amendment, protects your right not simply as a member of the militia, but your right as an individual to keep and bear arms. It was the first time that the court had decided that case or that matter quite so frontally and we now have the question before us, does this right apply against the states? Because Heller was a case that was brought against the District of Columbia, and so it involved only the federal government. The issue arises, of course, because the Bill of Rights was originally written and applied against the federal government, not until the ratification of the 14th Amendment in 1868 did the uh, Bill of Rights apply against the states. And then it became a question of what rights in the Bill of Rights were applicable against the states. The unfortunate event that followed five years after ratification was the slaughterhouse cases. In those cases, the court eviscerated the Privileges or Immunities Clause from the 14th Amendment, Section 1, and thereafter, the court would try to do under the less substantive due process clause what was meant to be done under the more substantive privileges or immunities clause. And it became a very vexing issue thereafter. There emerged, for example, the theory of substantive due process, which has given many conservatives, including those on the court, um, some sleepless nights because they see it as an opportunity for judicial mischief to find rights nowhere included among our, uh, even our unenumerated rights. Well, the case tomorrow raises the question, not simply does the, um, the, does the Second Amendment apply against the states, but on what ground does the Second Amendment apply against the states? Most people are of the view that the court will find that the amendment does apply, that the individual right is also good against states and municipalities, and so draconian statutes like that in Chicago will be found to be unconstitutional. After all, one of the key purposes of the 14th Amendment, uh, ratified at the height of Reconstruction in 1868, was to allow the newly freed slaves and white unionists to defend themselves against southern reprisals by protecting their right to keep and bear arms. And so the question that, uh, the second question tomorrow will be whether uh, this will be decided under the Due Process Clause as all other rights protected by the Bill of Rights have been found to be uh, protected, or under the Privileges or Immunities Clause. In other words, will the court, for the first time since 1873, revive the Privileges or Immunities Clause and therefore allow for a wider array of rights to be protected against the states, in particular, various economic liberties? And that's one of the issues that we'll be discussing here in this forum today. 
and we have with us three experts that I'm going to introduce just before they speak. We're going to start with Tim Sandifer, who wrote the brief that the Cato Institute filed in McDonald v. Chicago. Tim is a principal attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation in Sacramento, California. He's also an adjunct scholar here at the Cato Institute. Uh, At PLF, um, he is the um, lead attorney in their Economic Liberty Project. Uh, He works to protect businesses against abusive government regulation. He also works to prevent the abuse of eminent domain, having litigated important um, eminent domain cases in California, Missouri, and elsewhere, and having filed briefs in many significant eminent domain cases, including in the Kelo v. New New London case. He's a prolific writer. His book, uh, Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in 21st Century America, was published by the Cato Institute in 2006, and he's published many scholarly articles along the way on a wide range of subjects from eminent domain and economic liberty to copyright, evolution and creationism, and the legal issues of slavery and the Civil War. He's also a contributor editor, contributing editor to Liberty Magazine. He's written for many magazines and newspapers, including National Review Online, The Humanist, San Francisco Chronicle, Regulation, and The Washington Times. In February 2006, Tim became one of the youngest attorneys ever featured on the cover of California Lawyer Magazine. He's a frequent guest on radio and television programs. He's been on the Lair News Hour, CNBC Street Signs, now with David Brancaccio and C-SPAN's Book TV. Uh, he is a graduate of Hillsdale College and of the Chapman University School of Law. Please welcome Tim Sandifer. Thank you very much. I, I would like to talk um, more generally, not particularly about gun rights, but about the more abstract constitutional issues that are, that are involved in the McDonald case, because this is one of these cases that I think if the Supreme Court goes the way that, that I certainly hope it goes, um, it will be one of these cases where 10 years from now we will look back on this as, as a major decision of the U.S. Supreme Court. To understand the issues involved in the McDonald case uh, requires us to examine some issues of, of constitutional structure and political philosophy. The 14th Amendment was intended to be the final word in a debate over the nature of individual rights and their relationship to federalism that had occupied the uh, 19th century. That debate was ultimately the cause of the Civil War. And with the end of that war, the leaders of the victorious Union, that is the Republican Party, of course, wrote the 14th Amendment in order to make their model of sovereignty and individual rights permanent part of the American Constitution. Now, as with all things in intellectual history, it's hard to categorize things neatly, but I will try to do so by labeling the two sides to this debate, the states' rights view and the Republican view. Now, Republican, of course, somewhat inaccurate because that's the name that they only took in the 1850s when they organized the Republican Party, but it's as good a term as any. Um, As I explain at greater length, both in the brief I wrote and in in my article, Privileges, Immunities, and Substantive Due Process, and I brought copies of this for everybody out on the table. If we've run out or for the members of the television audience, if you want one, just send me an email at uh, tms at pacificlegal.org, and I'm happy to send you one. Um, As I explain in greater length in the article, the conflict between these two groups dates back to a debate between John Locke and William Blackstone on the nature of and limits of sovereignty. 
According to Locke, of course, government is limited by our natural rights, right? We were all born equally free and independent, and while we can form a government to protect our rights, government's powers, legitimate powers, are limited by those rights. No government may deprive us of them justly. As James Madison put it, quote, the sovereignty of the society as vested in and exercisable by the majority, may do anything that could be rightfully done by the unanimous concurrence of the members, the reserved rights of individuals in becoming parties to the original compact, being beyond the legitimate reach of sovereignty wherever vested or however viewed, end quote. Now, on the other side was William Blackstone, writing in the 1760s, who explicitly rejected Locke's theory. He argued that Parliament's sovereignty was, quote, supreme, irresistible, absolute, uncontrolled authority, end quote, and that Parliament could do, quote, anything that is not naturally impossible. It's not surprising that near the end of his life, Thomas Jefferson expressed some concern over the increasing popularity of Blackstone, Before the revolution, he wrote in his last letter to James Madison, only five months before he died, Sir Edward Cook was the universal elementary book of law students, and a sounder Whig never wrote. Our lawyers were then all Whigs. But when the honeyed words of Blackstone became the student's hornbook, from that moment, the profession, the nursery of our Congress, began to slide into Toryism, end quote. Now, Uh, He was right in that American lawyers relied on Blackstone throughout the 19th century to formulate a theory that upon separating from England, Parliament's absolute supreme irresistible authority went to the states. The states enjoyed power not limited by the natural rights of individuals. This is, of course, a very convenient idea for defenders of slavery to embrace. Opposed to these states' rights theorists were the classical liberals who would later formulate the Republican Party. And the most interesting one to me is John Quincy Adams. Now, of course, John Quincy Adams was the son of John Adams, an intimate with the founding generation, and after being president, he served in the House of Representatives and became basically the leader of the anti-slavery movement in Congress during the 1830s and 1840s. And he published a series of monographs touching on the political and legal implications of the Declaration of Independence and its natural rights philosophy. John Quincy Adams believed that the Declaration was not just political rhetoric, but a binding legal document a part of the organic law of the United States. It didn't just separate America from Britain. It also set limits on the powers of the states and national governments. Now, Adams explicitly explicitly dismissed Blackstone's notion, quote, that sovereign must necessarily be uncontrollable, unlimited despotic power as, quote, a hallucination. Because, quote, sovereignty thus defined is in direct contradiction to the Declaration of Independence and incompatible with the nature of our institutions. The states' rights doctrines that he was arguing against threatened to render the theory of the Declaration of Independence a philosophical dream, he said, and to allow, quote, uncontrolled despotic sovereignties to trample with impunity through a long career of after ages at interminable or exterminating war with one another upon the indefeasible and unalienable rights of man. End quote. John Quincy Adams was enormously influential among the rising generation of anti-slavery leaders. Probably his closest protege was Charles Sumner, but William Seward published the first biography of John Quincy Adams, and of course Adams served in Congress with the then little-known Illinois congressman Abraham Lincoln. The dispute between the states' rights followers of Blackstone 
And the Republican followers of Locke wasn't just about the nature and limits of sovereignty, but also about the location of sovereignty. And before 1787, we were governed by the Articles of Confederation, and that worked more like a treaty among sovereign states. The most important achievement of the 1787 Constitution was to replace that model with a single unified national model. Under Congress, under the Articles, Congress's power had been delegated by state legislatures. But under the Constitution, Congress and the federal government enjoyed sovereignty directly from the consent of the whole people of the United States. But beginning in the, early, in the 19th century, uh, pro-slavery politicians led primarily by John C. Calhoun of South Carolina devised a constitutional theory to resist federal power and rising anti-slavery opinion which denied that the federal government was sovereign and held instead that the states alone were sovereign and that the federal constitution was still just a treaty among sovereign states. Now, if you combine these two, the idea that state power is supreme and absolute and irresistible and the idea that the federal constitution is just a treaty among sovereign states, you basically have a recipe for totalitarianism. State governments with no practical limit on what they can do to their people. And this was the argument of the States' Rights Party led by people like Calhoun and by a man named Jeremiah Black, who is the Chief Justice of the State of Pennsylvania. Now, Black is a very interesting figure because in 1853, he issued a decision called Sharpless versus Mayor of Philadelphia that really articulated this natural rights theory very clearly. When America declared independence, he wrote, the transcendent powers of parliament were transferred to the states who enjoyed supreme and unlimited power. Thus, quote, if the people of Pennsylvania had given all the authority which they themselves possessed to a single person, they would have created a despotism as absolute in its control over life, liberty, and property as that of the Russian autocrat, end quote. Although Black conceded that the states had delegated some of their power, he concluded that state legislatures retained, quote, a vast field of power full and uncontrolled, and their use of that power can be limited only by their own discretion, end quote. Now, Chief Justice Black left his seat as the Supreme Court, as the Chief Justice of Pennsylvania Supreme Court, when he was appointed United States Attorney General by his fellow Pennsylvanian, James Buchanan. As Attorney General, he continued to make these arguments. Sovereignty is in its nature irresistible and absolute. Moral abstractions or theoretical principles of natural justice do not limit the legal authority of the sovereign. No government ought to violate justice, but any supreme government whose hands are entirely free can violate it with impunity. The idea that national citizenship was paramount to state citizenship and that states could not trample on natural or common law rights was, quote, inserted into the creed of the abolitionists because they supposed it would give a sort of plausibility to their violent intervention in the internal affairs of the states, end quote. Black's belief in supreme, irresistible state sovereignty was so strong that after the war, he devoted himself to defeating the program of Reconstruction, and he finally succeeded in that effort when he agreed to serve as one of the attorneys representing the state of Louisiana in the slaughterhouse cases. Just as black and other states' rights theorists held that the states were ultimately sovereign, Republicans held that the nation was sovereign, not the states. Upon declaring independence from Great Britain, the sovereignty formerly enjoyed by Parliament did not flow to the states, but to the nation as a whole, to the whole people of the United States. The United Colonies had declared independence not 13 separate sovereignties. And the Constitution was issued in the name of the people of the United States. They believed American citizenship was therefore different from and superior to state citizenship. 
Scholars have named this theory paramount national citizenship. And the reason it's so important is that it meant that all Americans enjoyed certain rights because they were Americans, not because they were Georgians or New Yorkers or Pennsylvanians. Many of these Republicans, of course, believe that the decision of Barron versus Baltimore had been wrong and that the Bill of Rights protections should apply to states as well as to the federal government. Now, I hope I've made clear that there were basically two parties in the United States in the years leading up to the Civil War. On one hand, the states' rights party led by people like Jeremiah Black, who agreed with Blackstone that sovereignty was absolute and unlimited and belonged to the states and not to the nation. To them, the Constitution was a treaty among sovereignties who had the power to restrict or limit individual rights at will. On the, other stand, on the other hand were people like John Quincy Adams, Charles Sumner, and other Republicans whose theory of paramount national citizenship held that sovereignty was limited by our natural rights and that the nation was sovereign so that all Americans enjoyed their rights as Americans, not as citizens of a state. After the Civil War, Republicans saw the opportunity to, to engraft their theory of paramount national citizenship into the Constitution. Of course, they had thought that this had always been constitutional law, but they hoped to remove any ambiguity by amending the Constitution to clarify that the American nation was paramount over the states and that American citizenship and federal protections for individual rights took precedence. And if you read the 14th Amendment, that's how it works. That's, that's the order it goes in, right? It starts out by saying all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. The first time that the Constitution had ever defined citizenship, and it starts with national citizenship. Then goes on to say, no state shall make or enforce any law that abridges the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And it was by undermining this achievement, by eliminating this theory of paramount national citizenship, that the slaughterhouse cases made its most fundamental error. There's a lot to complain about in the slaughterhouse cases, but the most important legal error was failing to give effect to the theory of paramount national citizenship. As Justice Stephen Field said in 1873, before this amendment, the states had supreme authority over all these matters, and the national government, except in a few particulars, could afford no protection to the individual. After the Civil War had closed, the same authority was asserted. The 14th Amendment was not, as we held in the slaughterhouse cases, primarily intended to confer citizenship on the Negro race. It had a much broader purpose. It was intended to justify legislation extending the protection of the national government over the common law rights of all citizens of the United States. It recognized, if it did not create, a national citizenship and declared that their privileges or immunities which embrace all the fundamental rights belonging to citizens of all free governments should not be abridged by any state. Now, it's interesting to note a parallel development in state law as well as federal law as far as the 14th Amendment is concerned. In 1857, the California Supreme Court issued a decision called Billings versus Hall, striking down a law that took private property away from, uh, from uh, absentee landlords. Uh, in that case, the Supreme Court held the Republican view that states were limited. It has been erroneously supposed by many that the legislature of a state may do any act except what was expressly prohibited by the Constitution, the Supreme Court said. This is the Supreme Court of California. Others contend there are boundaries set to the, ex to the exercise of the supreme sovereign power of the state. It is limited in its exercise by the great fundamental principles of the social compact. However, in 1870, the same court, the California Supreme Court, reversed this completely. Now, by 1870, of course, Californians were engaged in a war against Chinese immigrants. 
And one of the ways of, of engaging in this war was to pass a law saying no Chinese person could testify against a white person in court, which was basically a license to kill for whites, right? Because if a violent crime is going to be committed to, against a Chinese person, usually the witnesses are going to be other Chinese persons who now can't testify against a defendant. But the California Supreme Court in People v. Brady upheld the constitutionality of this law against a 14th Amendment challenge. The great mass of governmental powers are reserved to the states, the court said. The absolute right of uncontrolled local legislation upon all subjects most intimately connected with individual rights was reserved. The federal government was created by the compact of sovereign states, and their continued existence in the uncontrolled exercise of their powers is an essential uh, element of our system. If the, if the 14th Amendment had been intended to restrict state powers, the court concluded, we should regard it as we should a law apparently legalizing murder or robbery, end quote. Now, this same retreat from the doctrine of paramount national citizenship can be recognized in the slaughterhouse cases when Justice Miller's opinion says that the Privileges or Immunities Clause only protects those rights that owe their existence to national citizenship. Now, he's right about that taken out of context, but then he goes on to say, that those rights of national citizenship are a very narrowly limited set of such privileges as the right to travel to Washington, D.C., the right to demand federal protection on the high seas. Against what? The state of Arkansas? They don't have a navy. Um, it did not include, of course, the common law right to earn an honest living, a right that had been protected by English and American common law for at least two and a half centuries by that time. Miller, of course, did not discuss the legislative history of the amendment or anything about why it was drafted, the, paramount, the doctrine of paramount national citizenship, or anything. Now, it's a great tragedy that in the years after the Civil War, federal and state officials abandoned the efforts of Reconstruction to establish the principle of paramount national citizenship. The resurgence of states' rights ideology in the years that followed and the abandonment of natural rights principles in the 19th century eliminated federal protection for many fundamental human rights. Segregation, eugenics, censorship were all allowed along with the violation of voting rights, property rights, freedom of contract, and other fundamental human liberties. During the civil rights movement from the 1950s to the 1970s, there was a revival for protection of some of these rights, and courts did embrace the doctrine of paramount national citizenship to a limited degree. And other, con other constitutional provisions, like the due process or equal protection clauses, or uh, under the statutes, like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Ultimate, unfortunately, though, state and local governments today are still permitted to violate and ignore fundamental human rights. This includes not only the right to defend oneself against violence by possessing and using firearms, but also the fundamental human right to earn a living as one chooses. This is the same right that the state of Louisiana violated in 1868, leading to the litigation that started the slaughterhouse cases. Today, entrepreneurs and business owners are still basically unprotected against abuses, at the hands of state and local governments. Occupational licensing laws and other restrictions deprive people of their right to earn a living, their right to make economic choices, choices about employment, about running their own businesses. And the burdens of these restrictions typically fall heaviest on those with little political power to defend themselves, precisely those people who need a constitution to defend them. Take, for one example, the case of Adam Sweet, an Oregon college student who started a moving company called Two Brothers Moving to help put himself through college. He found that Oregon law required him to get a license first, and to get a license, you had to basically ask permission of all the existing moving companies. Now, you laugh at this, but this is the way that every major metropolitan city in the United States regulates taxi cabs. 
Uh, by the time, of course, it's not surprising that the state of Oregon had not issued any new licenses for several years. The state had created a cartel in the moving business that harmed consumers, that stifled entrepreneurship, and did not benefit the general public. In fact, the general public was not even allowed to issue an opinion on the subject. This law violated Adam Sweet's right to earn an honest living, not to protect the public, but to protect established companies against fair competition. Now, we, we at Pacific Legal Foundation challenged the constitutionality of that law, uh, arguing, among other things, that it violated the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. Of course, that part of our complaint was dismissed, pursuant to the slaughterhouse cases, although I'm glad to say that the state of Oregon, uh, thanks to our lawsuit, repealed that law last year. Today, the right of free speech, the right to freedom of religion, the right to freedom of the press, all receive relatively good, strong protection from courts. But state legislatures today enjoy basically unlimited power to restrict the freedom of America's wealth creators. If the Supreme Court chooses to overrule the slaughterhouse cases and to restore the Privileges and Immunities Clause and the constitutional vision of paramount national citizenship, it will be a welcome day for all Americans. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tim. We're now going to hear from Doug Kendall. Doug is the founder and president of the Constitutional Accountability Center, which is a think tank, law firm, and action center dedicated to fulfilling promise of our Constitution's text and history. He previously founded and directed the Community Rights Council, Constitutional Accountability Center's predecessor organization. Doug has represented clients in state and federal uh, appellate courts around the country, and he's co-authored more than a dozen briefs filed before the U.S. Supreme Court. He is the co-author of three books and lead author of numerous reports and studies. Doug launched and helped direct the Judging the Environment Project, a comprehensive effort to highlight the environmental stakes in the future of the U.S. Supreme Court and appointments to the federal bench. He has appeared on television programs including Nightline, 2020, Fox News Sunday, World News Tonight, and radio broadcasts on NPR, CBS News, Air America. His academic writings have appeared in scholarly journals, including the Virginia Law Review. His commentary is run in the New Republic, the American Prospect, Slate, and dozens of major papers, including the Washington Post, USA Today, and the Los Angeles Times. Doug is a blogger at Huffington Post. He received his degrees, both undergraduate and law, at the University of Virginia, Please welcome Doug Kendall. Thanks, Roger, and thanks for having me today. Um, the one thing in, that Roger didn't mention is we also filed a brief in the McDonald case, um, not on behalf of Constitutional Accountability Center, but actually on behalf of a collection of some of the most preeminent legal scholars in the country and really across a broad spectrum, uh, a broad spectrum of ideology ranging from Jack Balkin, who's a Yale Law professor who um, is, I, I would, I think, a self-described uh, liberal to Steve Calabresi, who's one of the founders of the Federalist Society, including, you know, ranging in that, uh, you know, across that spectrum. There are eight preeminent scholars, and it really builds upon a much broader collection of scholarship um, that includes some of the, I think, unrecognized giants of constitutional law over the last 30 years from Akhil Amar to Charlie Black um, to John Hart Ely that the 
Constitution's Privileges or Immunities Clause has been badly mistreated by the Supreme Court for about 140 years. Really, nowhere is a disconnect between the Constitution's text and history uh, and the modern Supreme Court doctrine more pronounced than its interpretation of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Um, there, the broad consensus that our brief embodies indicates that the Privileges or Immunities Clause was supposed to be the centerpiece of the 14th Amendment and the way in which fundamental substantive rights, liberty interests, are protected against infringement by the government. As, um, you know, correspondingly, there's now almost universal agreement the Supreme Court badly erred in the 1873 Slaughterhouse case and subsequent rulings which effectively read the Privileges or Immunities Clause out of the Constitution. As Akhil Amar, who's a constitutional law professor at Yale Law School, has said, virtually no serious modern scholar, left, right, or center, believes that Slaughterhouse is a plausible reading of the 14th Amendment. And that's really the consensus that the brief we filed in this case embodies. And the reason this matters is because with the Privileges or Immunities Clause read out of the Constitution, the Supreme Court turned to the Due Process Clause as a vehicle for applying substantive protections against the states and for recognizing and protecting unenumerated rights and liberties, starting with the case of Meyer versus Nebraska, which is about the right to control the education of children, and going through a line of cases that are probably as controversial as any in modern Supreme Court law. That includes Roe versus Wade and the right to reproductive choice, and Lawrence versus Texas and the right of sexual intimacy. Um, the result is a doctrine known as substantive due process. And for reasons I won't rehearse here, um, substantive due process is less than a perfect constitutional actor for the role. This has led to the constitutional equivalent of a food fight for the last 30 years among progressives and conservatives. Um, conservatives, including Justice Scalia, have attacked substantive due process as exhibit A in their case that um, progressives and liberal justices on the court uh, don't respect the Constitution's text and history. Uh, liberals have looked to the arguments by Justice Scalia and others that incorporation uh, at its, of the Bill of Rights and other doctrines that stem from the Privileges or Immunities Clause um, are unjustifiable as evidence that conservatives on the Supreme Court would roll back protections even for uh, the substantive rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights. And the whole debate should make anyone who cares about constitutions, text, and history want to scream because the entire discussion is devoid of any real consideration of the text and history that really matters, and that is the text and history of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And I just want to just kind of rehearse and go through a little bit point by point, the, the points we make in our brief, because I think it informs this discussion a little bit. You know, the, first, the first point is that the Privileges or Immunities Clause was crafted against a backdrop of right, rights suppression in the, in the South. 
It was, in, it was written and intended to protect substantive rights and liberties against state infringement. This is, some of this is, uh, Tim went through before, but the, the remarkable thing about the 14th Amendment that has been kind of lost in modern debates is that we have a history of it um, that is out there looking to be discovered and looking to be looked to that is just being forgotten right now. There's a, the, the drafters of the 14th Amendment, they created a joint um, commission, a joint um, uh, conference, which was made up of members of the Senate and then the House. They did hearings for about six months in 1866, which led to the drafting of the 14th Amendment. At those hearings, they went throughout the South to determine what the needs were, why we needed a, a Second Amendment to the Constitution. And they produced a book, the Report of the Joint Committee of uh, Reconstruction, that was the star report of the day, right? They had, they had 165,000 copies of this report. It's 1,000 pages long. 165,000 copies in a time where America was tiny compared to where it was today. They distributed it around the country. That is the record of the committee that produced the 14th Amendment. And you see what they cared about. And what they cared about is the suppression of rights by the southern states of both the freed, the newly freed slaves and unionists in the South. And they talk about things like the suppression, um, they, they cared uh, about suppression of freedom of speech, about freedom, um, uh, about some economic freedoms, about um, the right to bear arms, as well as these rights of heart and home. The, remember the treatment of, of the slave families in the South and, and continued into the Reconstruction was abysmal. They took husbands away from wives, children away from parents. And that, that history, the history of uh, abuse of slaves and then in the, in the Reconstruction period is what informs the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Um, second point is by 1866, the public meaning of privileges or immunities included fundamental rights. James Madison, when he introduced the Bill of Rights to Congress, called the Bill of Rights the choicest privileges of the people. And what that indicates and what scholars have documented is that while the terms privileges or immunities are kind of foreign to us today, they weren't foreign to the framers both the original Constitution and the, um, the 14th Amendment. They had a very distinct meaning which included um, fundamental rights both enumerated in the Constitution and unenumerated. Um, and that's, you know, it's the most famous expression of them is Justice Bushrod Washington, a nephew of George Washington, who wrote in a famous opinion called Corfield versus Coriel. He, he defined the privileges and immunities clause of Article 4 uh, of the original Constitution and defined it in a way that kind of echoes the Declaration of Independence and, and the inalienable rights to right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and, and, and kind of riffs on that. And that is, that is the public meaning of the term um, privileges or immunities. And, and there were, as Randy Barnett has documented in scholarship we summarize 
in the brief we filed, there were 27 of the 37 states had constitutional provisions that were basically the Declaration of Independence or the or, or echoed closely Justice Bushrod Washington's opinion in Corfield. So there's a very defined meaning um, of privileges or immunities as the protection of substantive fundamental rights. Third, the congressional debates about the 14th Amendment um, very clearly indicate that the Privileges or Immunities Clause was supposed to incorporate the protections of the Bill of Rights against the states and protect other enumerate, enumerated and unenumerated um, fundamental rights. Um, the most, the clearest statement of that is the statement by Jacob Howard, who is a senator from Michigan. He was part of the Joint Committee on the Reconstruction. He was designated by the Joint Committee to present the 14th Amendment um, to the uh, to the Cong to the Senate, uh, he does so in a speech that just lays out as clear as can be that privileges or immunities are both uh, the, the the enumerated protections of the Bill of Rights and a broader set of uh, substantive uh, liberties. Um, that is echoed by um, a number of critical framers and founders of the 14th Amendment and really not disputed even by the opponents of the amendment. Um, fourth point is, is a little technical, but that is that the wording of the uh, 14th Amendment, while similar to the Article 4 Privileges and Immunities Clause, is broader in in important ways. The most important is that the Article 4 Privileges and Immunities Clause is really a equality provision or a non-discrimination provision. It prevents discrimination in the provision of, of privileges or, and immunities, whereas the uh, 14th Amendment is really a guaranteed uh, guarantee of substantive rights. Um, next point is that um, the founders of the 14th Amendment, and that's really where we get to this case, um, the founders of the 14th Amendment intended that um, the right to bear arms would be a privilege or immunity of United States citizenship. And this is one of the, it's a very clear point made in the history, and it's, it's a surprising, it's for a surprising reason. Uh, I think when we debated Heller and when Justice Scalia and Justice Stevens had this back and forth about what Heller was all about, we're all talking about this history from 1787 or 1789 to time, we, or 1791 when we ratified the Bill of Rights. Um, and, and I think that was a kind of cloudy history in some ways because the, the amendment is a little bit tricky with its preamble and the court kind of... Uh, divided very closely on that. If you look at the history of the 14th Amendment, you see something very different. And what you see is that the framers of the 14th Amendment, um, almost all, uh, cared a lot about the right to bear arms for the reason that all the rebels in the South had guns. And the people who didn't have guns were the uh, Unionists that were in the South and the freedmen. And any property that those, any possessions, any, the, you know, the, the families of the former slaves, um, the property and everything that they were able to get after the war was under assault. And so one of the things that uh, the founders of the 14th Amendment, one of the reasons they wanted to adopt the 14th uh, 
amendment and the Privileges or Immunities Clause was to uh, make sure that the uh, freedmen had a right and ability to protect uh, themselves and their family from uh, the, the first the former rebels and then the Klan, which, rove, which started to uh, roam shortly after the ratification. Um, the final point is simply that precedent does not prevent the court from recognizing um, that the Privileges or Immunities Clause uh, prevents infringement of the right to bear arms. Um, this, the court is going to have to tomorrow wrestle with some very, very old cases. The court, in three cases uh, in the late, uh, late 19th century, held that the Second Amendment does not apply against state action. And so the court is going to have to revisit portions of these cases. The Slaughterhouse case, which we're all talking about, has already been effectively gutted by subsequent rulings, meaning the court as uh, or the, the court in Slaughterhouse, as Tim indicated, had this very this this idea that the Civil War and the Fourteenth Amendment really didn't change anything in the relationship between the states and the federal government. Well the Supreme Court has reversed that all already without actually reversing um, the slaughterhouse cases. So the court has already gutted slaughterhouse in many important ways. It has, um, it's going to have to go back and revisit very early cases. And so the argument is it's not too late in the day. If you're going to do that anyway, you should go back and write um, what we think is one of the most egregious wrongs in Supreme Court history, which is the reading of the Privileges or Immunities Clause in the Slaughterhouse case. Thank you. Well, thank you, Doug. We're going to hear finally from Cato's own Ilya Shapiro. Uh, Ilya is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at Cato, and he is the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Before joining Cato, he was a special assistant advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues and practiced international, political, commercial, and antitrust litigation at Patton Boggs and Cleary Gottlieb. Uh, Ilya has contributed to a variety of academic, popular, and professional publications, including the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, LA Times, Washington Times, Legal Times, Weekly Standard, Roll Call, National Review Online, and from 2004 to 2007, he wrote Dispatches from Purple America column for TCS Daily. He's also the author of an article that, uh, has it just come out, uh, Ilya? Yeah. Two, weeks Two weeks ago. in the Georgetown Journal of Law and Public Policy, uh, a co-author of an article uh, with Josh Blackman uh, on the Privileges or Immunities Clause. It's a very, very long scholarly article. Um, he uh, also um, regularly provides commentary on a host of legal and political issues for various TV and radio outlets, including CNN, Fox News, ABC, CBS, NBC, Univision, Voice of America, and American Public Media's Marketplace. He's an adjunct professor at George Washington University Law School, a member of the Board of Visitors of the Legal Studies Institute at the Fund for American Studies, and a Washington Fellow at the National Review Institute. He lectures regularly on behalf of the Federalist Society and other educational and professional groups. Uh, before entering private practice, uh, Ilya clerked for Judge uh, Jolly, e. e. Grady Jolly of the U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, 
Uh, he is a graduate of Princeton University, has an MS, uh, Master of Science from London School of Economics, and he earned his JD at the University of Chicago Law School. Please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Thanks for that, Roger, and thanks to all of you for being here. Um, I guess I'll first acknowledge uh, Alan Gura walked in, uh, who'll be arguing tomorrow the case, sitting back there. Those of you who are blogging or writing about this event, make sure you attribute all the quotes correctly. Alan, feel free to steal anything I say and attribute it to yourself tomorrow during the argument. Um, secondly, I'd like to mention that uh, Doug's uh, briefing that, that Roger mentioned and that, uh, that Doug referred to in this case um, his brief in his, the, the Constitutional Accountability Center, uh, their brief in the Seventh Circuit uh, below in this case uh, was recently selected by the Green Bag, which is the entertaining journal of law, as one of their examples of top legal writing this year. So I commend that to you. Uh, and the name of that article that Josh Blackman, who's in the front row, and I wrote that Roger mentioned is called Keeping Pandora's Box Sealed. If you Google my name and Pandora, you'll, uh, you'll come up with it. Um, well, I never thought that we'd be talking about the Privileges or Immunities Clause or the 14th Amendment or any of these big issues uh, in the context of guns. Um, uh, you might have seen some uh, references in the media about the difference uh, in this case that have come out between the gun nuts and the Constitution nuts. I'm firmly on the side of the Constitution nuts. And so it's, it's a little odd that uh, I guess it falls to me after these two uh, accomplished uh, scholars to be the first one to actually talk about guns uh, in, in this context. Um, and th the thing is, this has been a long-term project of scholars from across uh, the ideological perspectum to, to uh, uh, reverse slaughterhouse and revive the privileges or immunities clause for various reasons. There we might diverge, libertarians versus progressives versus conservatives, uh, and we've agreed not to talk about the specifics about that divergence, although you know, feel free to ask in the, in the Q&A. Uh, but we never thought that the way that we'd get to the Supreme Court uh, with this uh, reinvigoration of, uh, as, as Doug's report calls it, the gem of the Constitution, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, was through guns, through the right to keep and bear arms. Um, you know, ten years ago, if you would have asked uh, uh, you know, Roger Pallon, one of the the, the key um, uh, figures in the libertarian legal movement in, in, in scholarship uh, that, that advances public policy uh, here and across the country, you know, how, how would this part of the, of the agenda, if you will, be advanced? You know, the Second Amendment or, or gun rights would not be at the f uh, forefront of, of his mind, I would, I would wager. Uh, and yet, you know, this is the, how the wheel of history turns. Um, to get to the actual case and, and how I think the argument will, will go tomorrow and some of the more specific issues, you have to go back to Civics 101 or, or the Constitution 101. Remember now, all of you turn to your, your pocket constitutions. Now, the Cato one is the most reliable one, but I think even the, the American Constitution Society version or the Heritage version uh, will, will give you what, what, what is needed here. Um, you know, the first, before you even get to the Bill of Rights, uh, the first... Um, six articles, the original, uh, sorry, seven articles, the original Constitution provides the governmental structure, right? And there was this big argument between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists of whether we even needed a Bill of Rights in the first place. Why do we need this, uh, given that we don't give the government power to 
uh, infringe any of these important rights. And indeed, if we start writing down what these rights are, then we'll, you know, we'll disparage these others, which is why eventually there was a compromise. We had enumeration of certain rights, and the Ninth Amendment uh, said that uh, you know, this enumeration uh, did not deny or disparage other rights that are retained by the people. And then the Tenth Amendment was kind of the belt and suspenders on the power side, that even though we only enumerate certain powers, for example, in Article I, Section 8, uh, that gives congressional powers. Uh, just to be clear, the Tenth Amendment says that those not specifically enumerated are retained uh, by the states and the people. That's the structural version of the Constitution. Uh, and that was, uh, that was all well and good. And again, that all applied to the federal government. Until then, uh, until the Civil War, none of these, you know, the First Amendment right to free speech, the Third Amendment right uh, to be free from having troops forcibly quartered in your home, none of these could be applied as against state governments. You know, state governments could be free to send their, uh, you know, state militias and, and force them to, for you to house them or, or, or whatnot. Um, but then we had this Civil War, which affected a fundamental rethink, um, uh, reconstruction, uh, to coin a term, uh, of the relationship between the federal and state governments uh, and between the federal and state governments respectively and the individual. The 14th Amendment was the huge part of that. Now, what did the 14th Amendment do? Did it just say, uh, okay, the, those rights that we enumerated, the first eight plus those unenumerated ones that the ninth covers, those shall now apply to the states? Now, that could have been the text of the 14th Amendment, you could very easily understand the sophisticated lawyers and politicians who were uh, propounding uh, the, the, the post-Civil War amendments to just, just say that. But that's not what they did. And therefore, as Akhil Amar, one of the signers of uh, uh, Doug's brief, um, uh, says, the 14th Amendment, and specifically the Privileges or Immunities Clause, covers both more and less than the Bill of Rights. Uh, and... A corollary to that is that this whole doctrine of incorporation is a constitutional malapropism, a misnomer. Um, Senator Jacob Howard and, and Representative John Bingham, the primary uh, movers of the 14th Amendment, because you have to go, those are the framers when we're, what we're talking about in this context, not, you know, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. That was the original Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Now we're talking about the 14th Amendment. Senator Howard and Representative Bingham um, uh, they, they weren't talking about, uh, well, now we'll just incorporate the uh, Second Amendment, the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, what have you. What they said is that we will now give all uh, individuals or persons or citizens, depending on which clause you're talking about, the equal protection of the laws, the due process of the law before we can deprive them of life, liberty, uh, or property, and privileges or immunities. Now, that means that privileges or immunities uh, based on the understanding of that term in 1868, and remember, if you're going to try to understand what the public meaning of that term is, what the text and structure and history of the 14th Amendment uh, leads you to, you have to do that with respect to the ratification of that amendment, 1868, not 1787 or 1791 or 2010 or 1937 or what have you. And what that meant then, based on the, the speeches and reports from that time, building on the decision by Justice Bushrod Washington in Corfield versus Coriel, the case that, that Doug mentioned, uh, were certain were natural rights uh, of various kinds. In fact, the, the privileges or immunities was 18, 19th century speak for natural rights, plus certain political and civic, uh, uh, civic rights. Um, 
And that's what that meant. It, it doesn't mean that uh, the, all of a sudden uh, the Second Amendment, the First Amendment, what have you, are incorporated. But the codification of the rights in the First and Second and so forth amendments is persuasive evidence of what privileges or immunities are. Not dispositive evidence, but persuasive, just like uh, uh, Justice Washington's opinion in Corfield v. Coriel is persuasive evidence of that. And so um, when we're talking about uh, the McDonald case, it's not really right to say does the, are, is the Second Amendment incorporated against the states via the Privileges or Immunities Clause or, either, or, or even via uh, the Due Process Clause. Um, it's not even correct to say whether the Second Amendment is applied or extended uh, by one of these clauses. The, re the right formulation, the way to think about this, if you're going to be faithful to the constitutional text and history, you know, Civics 101, uh, you know, separation of powers, how the Constitution was constructed, all that I've just uh, uh, gone through, uh, is whether the right to keep and bear arms applies or is extended to the states? And how is it extended? Via the due process or the privileges or immunities clause. Um, and I suggest to you that, it, first of all, that it does apply. Uh, if, if the only reason that you came here was to find out or are listening to this, uh, watching this program, is to find out whether the right to keep and bear arms is going to be applied to the states and whether Chicago's gun ban is going to fall, uh, let me uh, end the suspense right now and say yes. If that's your only concern, if the gun rights are your only concern at, at that basic level, uh, you know, uh, we're done, you know, uh, and I'm sorry that it took until, you know, almost an hour into the program for you to find that out, uh, but, but there you go. Um, uh, the bigger issue, as we've, as we've discussed, is what this means for the future of liberty and for uh, the fidelity of the Constitution, and fundamentally the rule of law, because we've had this whole corpus of law develop um, uh, that has warped our understandings of which rights are covered and which aren't, you know, as Justice Scalia is famous for doing. Now, he's not necessarily my favorite justice, but he's certainly the most uh, quotable and entertaining to watch. He likes to talk about how uh, under the, the court's existing fundamental rights jurisprudence or substantive due process, uh, what the justices do when they try to figure out whether something is protected by the Constitution is they kind of sit around and say, huh, is that fundamental? Is that an undue burden on, on something fundamental? Hmm, I don't know. Yes, yes it is. No, no, it's not. I mean, that's, that's not a principled way of uh, doing constitutional jurisprudence. And that's why we have these poisonous debates about judicial activism. And by the way, judicial activism, to give you a proper definition, is something that the speaker doesn't like, okay? Uh, it's, it's, it's a meaningless term, but we've had these debates both in terms of uh, legal cases and, in, and whenever a new Supreme Court justice or now lower court judge uh, is nominated, you know, that's, you know, he or she is an activist. So now we have the, from last summer, the, the, the new Sotomayor test where every nominee has to say, no, I only apply the law to the facts, you know, and, and that's... Uh, and that's it. It's become a bit of a, a, bit of a farce. Uh, why that is, uh, I refer you to a paper that, that Roger uh, Pallon wrote called um, Why Constitutional Corruption Has Led to Ideological Litmus Tests in Judicial Confirmations. You can find that on the Cato website. But that's sort of beyond the scope of, of our discussion here. Now, okay, given uh, what we've just gone through, the, the right to keep and bear arms, uh, you look at 
what it meant, whether it was a privilege, understood to be a privilege or immunity uh, in 1868, and it clearly was, uh, in part for historical reasons that the uh, 14th Amendment was uh, put in in large part to preserve the individual liberties of freed slaves and, and unionists in the border and southern states, um, in, in part because it's deeply rooted in our traditions. Now, the article that I mentioned that Josh Blackman and I co-wrote, uh, Keeping Pandora's Box Sealed, we suggest that the test to apply is the one that the court has applied in Glucksburg versus Washington. And that's very similar to what uh, Judge Darmado Scandal of the Ninth Circuit did in finding that the right to keep and bear arms does apply to the states in the Nordyke case. Um, but I think that's a, an appropriate uh, uh, method of, of seeing whether a particular right is covered uh, by the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And it's quite clear that if anything, I mean, all of us here, we, you know, we might disagree on whether some progressive right or libertarian right or what have you is protected or not, but the, the right to keep and bear arms, uh, it's, uh, it's so deeply rooted, so specifically described um, that there's really no controversy that it, that it would be protected. And so uh, to stay or to get more faithful to the Constitution, um, and, and, and perhaps more importantly, to do mo far more for the cause of freedom than merely extend the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, the court, if it listens to Allen well tomorrow and, and um, interprets the, uh, uh, the Constitution as it should, uh, will say that uh, privileges or immunities is, is the way to go. It's, the way, it's where we find the right to keep and bear arms, and therefore complete prohibitions on um, handguns for self-defense, for example, like the Chicago gun ban, uh, have to fall. Now, um, there are many interests. I, I doubt we will get nine uh, votes for that position. But one realistic, and what I would call my... Um, most realistic, uh, best-case scenario. It's, it's quite interesting. You could have uh, Justice Thomas is on record for both privileges or immunities, and I think that he would find that the right to keep and bear arms falls into that. So that, that's one solid vote. But then the four liberal justices might like privileges or immunities for the reasons that, that Doug has described, um, but under kind of a, a Justice Breyer a multi-factor balancing test like Breyer's concurrence in Heller might say that the Chicago gun ban is still okay. And then the other four perhaps scared off by a, a Pandora's box that, that Josh Blackman and I have been trying to seal, um, or for other reasons, we'll just say, we'll just stick with our substantive due process, no need to revisit Slaughterhouse. But under that rubric, we will strike down the Chicago gun ban. In that event, you would have five votes for privileges or immunities, five votes to strike the Chicago gun ban, and the hinge is the one that combined those two, Justice Thomas. That's what I'm, uh, that's what I'm hoping for, and, uh, and we'll see what happens. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ilya. Now we're going to go to your questions. Uh, I ask simply that you uh, identify yourself when you get the microphone and any affiliation you may have and identify the speaker to whom your question is directed. Please try to keep your questions brief, and I would ask the speakers in responding to keep your responses brief so we can get as many questions as possible. Yes, right here. Hello, I'm Dane von Breichendruckard with the U.S. Bill of Rights Foundation. And my question is this, is that whether this is, um, this, whether the privileges of immunities or the due process clause prevails in the argument, 
What is it going to look like? I mean, what, what, what would be the difference? What would one world look like if it's under privileges and immunities, and what would the world look like if it was under due process, substantive due process? I, I know you've touched on that, Doug, but I was wondering, could you, as a practical matter, are we going to go back and undo a bunch of cases? Is it going to really change the way we identify a substantive um, um, rights? Exactly what will the world look like, so to speak? Thanks. I, I mean, I don't think immediately the world will look very different at all. I think that, I mean, that the, one of the reasons why this is a good case to get the court to rethink these issues is because it is, uh, I, I think there will be pretty broad agreement that the enumerated substantive rights um, uh, laid out in the Bill of Rights constitute uh, privileges or immunities. And so it's a fairly narrow set of a fairly narrow um, rethinking of the Privileges or Immunities Clause as an initial step. Um, and I don't, I mean, I think that the court will either, uh, again, at least initially, either uh, retain its due process jurisprudence or not, not overturn it in this case. They will do, you know, if they overturn um, uh, Slaughterhouse. That's that's a good day's work, uh, and I think then it will it will leave for later cases how that affects the rest of the jurisprudence. What we've argued, and I didn't mention this, but Ilya did kindly. We have a report called the Gem of the Constitution that's available at our website. At the, it's called theusconstitution.org. That's our URL that kind of lays out in a little more detail the the argument we make in our brief. And the argument says, I mean, the, the good thing about having a privileges or immunities clause and the history is that you can read the history and look to what the framers were looking at. And I think that's where debates about what the privileges or immunities clause means should, should begin. Well, the, uh, the other virtue of this case is that the Heller case was essentially a case of first impression because there was so little in the way of uh, precedent for the court to go on. It had to go back to the first principles of the matter, to the original understanding that surrounded the Second Amendment. And accordingly, when it came time to then consider the next question, whether the right, now that it was found to be an individual right, applied against the states, you had a similar opportunity to go back to first principles, and that's why the Privileges or Immunities Clause was briefed so heavily in the, uh, in the uh, McDonald case, was because now we have just the kind of case that is appropriate for raising that question about whether Slaughterhouse was wrongly decided from the outset and whether the court from the outset should have decided cases in the uh, 14th Amendment jurisprudence under the Privileges or Immunities Clause uh, more often than under the Due Process Clause. So this case presents an ideal vehicle for revisiting that fundamental question. Uh, this uh, Alan up in the back, uh, who is the counsel in the McDonald case for the plaintiffs, and is in... Uh, it's a great panel here, and I just wanted to make a couple of quick announcements. Uh, it's a very impressive panel. I've chosen to give each three of you five minutes of my time tomorrow. Uh, so uh, get ready. 
<laughs> can't give away you, Paul Clement's time. Uh, okay, oh. you can you can <laughs> you can ask him if you want. <laughs> and I just wanted to recognize the great people who are behind the case. Obviously, it's a lot of fun to work on this matter, and I've had a lot of help from uh, scholars and lawyers and other people who've studied the field for years. It wouldn't be possible without all the work of many people over the years. But I wanted to recognize some of the people in the room who are actually the plaintiffs in the case. And uh, if you if you are a plaintiff in the case, can you please stand up? Uh, I think I see some of you guys here. Uh, that's right. Does Adam, everyone give a round of applause. Yes, you too. Uh, okay. Uh, these are the people that were, these are the people who are going to get your rights back. And uh, thank them all if you uh, have a chance later. Thanks. Thank you, Alan. Okay, next question is gentleman right on the aisle here. Uh, the one concern I have with the Privileges and Immunities Clause, it applies only to, uh, unlike the, the, uh, the Due Process and the Equal Protection Clause in the, in the Bill of Rights, it applies only to persons born or naturalized in the United States, which means it wouldn't apply to corporations, wouldn't apply to, to uh, immigrants, whether legal or ir- illegal. So I wonder if, if any of you have considered whether the limitations on the concept and the difference between the scope of the Privileges and Immunities Clause in that it's limited only to United States citizens, natural United States citizens, unlike all the other constitutionally protected rights, whether that has legal significance. Tim, do you want to address that? Uh, well, I'll just say it, it is, that's a serious concern. The, the, um, but let's, let's try and be clear. The, the, the Citizenship Clause says who is citizens uh, and that includes naturalized immigrants. So it wouldn't necessarily – it wouldn't exclude all immigrants, but it would certainly uh, – ex- it would appear to exclude from the protection of national rights those uh, – uh, uh, when people don't – are not citizens of the United States, they don't have national citizenship rights. Now, of course, the due process and equal protection clauses apply to any person within a state's jurisdiction. So a non-citizen would, would still be able to, to assert rights under those clauses. But I think that is a serious, a serious issue. As, oh, I'm sorry. As far as corporations, the courts have already made it very clear that the Privileges or Immunities Clause does not apply to corporations. That's already binding law. Ilya? As, uh, as a non-citizen, I'm, I'm particularly interested in that, that question. I just got my green card about 10 months ago, so um, I, I'm enjoying the, uh, the fruits of the, of the rest of the Constitution. But um, the, uh, I mean, there, there's, there's every reason for having different types of constitutional protections for citizens versus non-citizens and legal uh, immigrants versus tourists versus uh, illegal visitors. And, you know, there's a structure depending on what uh, right we're talking about that applies uh, differently. And uh, the the Equal Protection Clause does a lot of the work to make sure that, for example, uh, you know, well, all of a sudden you can uh, enslave uh, non-citizens or something like this. Um, I, I think the reason why the citizenship language was used in privileges or immunities is because it applies not just to natural rights and not just to those rights enumerated um, uh, in the Bill of Rights, or not necessarily all of them, but again, though, that's, as I said, though, that's just an example of, of the codification of, of some of the uh, natural rights, but because they also include certain uh, civil and political rights, which understandably uh, non-citizens don't, uh, don't have. Um, yes, this gentleman right here. Good 
So my name is Corey Carpenter. I'm with um, George Mason School of Law, a first-year student. And um, Mr. Shapiro shared with us his um, realistically predicted um, split outcome in the case. I was wondering if the other panelists would weigh in on what they think the split will be in this case at the end. Tim, do you have a sense of the matter? Uh, as far as the, the issue of the slaughterhouse cases is concerned, um, I think that most of the justices have expressed at least some discomfort with that decision. There was the, the Signs versus Roe case in 1999, which was written by Justice Stevens, uh, and the majority in that case didn't really say one way or the other, but seemed to regard slaughterhouse as questionable. And, of course, uh, the dissent by Justice Thomas was a very powerful call for slaughterhouse to be overruled. I think the, the, the real concern to me is that the court might try to take an easy way out and incorporate uh, gun rights under the Due Process Clause. And the reason why that's a serious problem is that you can always use that excuse to perpetuate legal error, right? If, suppose that the Supreme Court were to say that the First Amendment doesn't care, guarantee the right to freedom of speech and then later says, well, the, the Eighth Amendment guarantees your right to freedom of speech, you know. Well, any time a free speech case comes before the court saying you were wrong about that, the court could say, yeah, we're just going to keep using the Eighth Amendment. You know, so there's the argument, well, we don't need to reassess that old case because we can, you can abuse this other area of law and continue to do, do so. Then you, there's no way to correct this error. And, and really, there's no better argument for overturning Slaughterhouse than that it was wrongly decided. Um, now, by saying that, I don't want to... Uh, say that I think substantive due process is in any way an invalid theory. Substantive due process is as much a valid component of the American Constitution as the free speech clause, as the dormant commerce clause, as anything else. And part of part of the the argument in my in my law review article and in the in the, the brief that we filed is that substantive due process was a well understood and generally accepted theory at the time that the Fourteenth Amendment was written. And so um, reviving the Privileges or Immunities Clause should not give the court an excuse to abandon protection for individual rights under the substantive due process theory. Doug, did you want to speculate? That doesn't really answer your question, but yeah, it's no, a I, clever lawyerly way out of it. Um, <laughs> what would Blackstone say about this, Tim? <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's, it'll be – I mean, uh, the, the, there's a front-page story in the Washington Post today about this case, um, which has a quote from Justice Scalia that I actually had never seen before, where he calls the Privileges or Immunities Clause flotsam, uh, which as I... Uh, process is babble, and <laughs> Privileges or Immunities is flotsam. So uh, the Amendment is an ink flot. At least nothing is jetsam. Which, uh, which uh, and he has also said in an interview that he gave to the Hoover Institute, I believe in 2008, that he believes... Um, that uh, incorporation itself is, in his words, probably false. And so the fascinating thing about this case is you have the great originalist from the Heller case, the you know, Justice Scalia, who had his triumphant moment in restoring the Second Amendment on originalist grounds in Heller, um, really badly read it, misreading the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, at least in his prior statements. And so the question I find most fascinating with this case and the, case, the question that is really explored in the Post today is how our most public um, proponent of originalism deals with the incredibly powerful arguments from scholars across 
the political uh, scholars and organizations across the political spectrum that the original public meaning of the um, 14th Amendment both supports incorporation and um, requires overturning the slaughterhouse case. Yes, this one of the fascinating aspects of this case is that it does bring to the fore the problem that conservatives have had with judicial mischief in the form of judicial activism under its normal rubric. And the conservatives on the court are textualists and or originalists. And the problem they're facing is that, as such, they have to make sense of the text that is staring them in the face. For 150 years now, they have ignored that text. It's as though it did not exist. And so if you're going to be a textualist, there is the text that says that no state shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And it has been, in effect, inoperative for all this time. It surely is there for a reason. It's not mere surplusage. And so conservatives who purport to be textualists are going to have to make sense of just why it is there, and better sense, I submit, than the slaughterhouse case made of the matter. And what they have to do to do that is to go back to the history of it, which all three of our uh, speakers today have eloquently discussed. And when they do, it seems to me that the statements that uh, Justice Scalia has made uh, will perhaps come in for some reconsideration. At least one would hope that they do. Next question. Right here. Hi, Bob Brown, all are uh, unaffiliated. Uh, Ilya, you seemed to me you were saying that if the court reconsiders the privileges or immunities clause, you're opening a Pandora's box. But you didn't really explain why. Could you go into that a little more? That's the concern. I'm actually saying that it's not opening a Pandora's box. It's, uh, if it does it properly, it would actually close the Pandora's box and uh, dog's breakfast, to mix metaphors, uh, of jurisprudence that has come out of uh, the, uh, the warped substantive due process doctrine, uh, incorporation, and all the rest of it, our, our bifurcation of rights under Caroline Products footnote 4 and other constitutional perversions. The concern uh, depends where you lie on the ideological spectrum. If you're a progressive, you're worried about uh, the preservation of the right to uh, earn an honest living and, and uh, freedom of contract and property rights and these sorts of things because those could strike down all sorts of potentially uh, health and safety regulations, um, uh, licensing regulations, um, uh, you know, prevent kind of uh, progressive good government. If you're a libertarian, conversely, you're worried that uh, into, out of that Pandora's box could come uh, the right, the constitutionalized right to health care and welfare payments and uh, 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 education and, and, and what have you. Um, and there's, you know, going back to philosophy, political theory 101, that there's all sorts of problems that we see with that. Um, and conservatives uh, sharing uh, many of the libertarian concerns about uh, economic rights and, and positive rights uh, also add the concern for, uh, you know, uh, uh, triplet midget polygamous marriage and, um, you know, various uh, uh, kinky sexual things and an extension of uh, privacy, invented privacy rights as opposed to private, properly protected privacy rights, as I would call them. 
um, uh, to things that, that shouldn't be there. And so there are all these concerns. Uh, I don't think the concerns are warranted. Maybe some concerns on the progressive side are warranted. Um, but if you look at uh, the, the original public meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause and the protections, uh, you know, you, you really have to find that that right is deeply rooted and, and protected as understood at the time. Um, and, and, and so a lot of these worries really uh, uh, should fall away. Yeah, I think, you know, just to add to that, I think that goes back to the first question that was asked, what's the difference between using privileges or immunities and using due process? I think um, one of the things that, cons- that ought to allay conservative fears about privileges or immunities is that it seems to me that, that using due process, as Ilya said, said in his talk, opens up the analysis to does a justice believe that it's essential to the course of ordered liberty or some, these, these very abstract terms that then necessarily call for political philosophy. Now, I'm all for using political philosophy and jurisprudence. I just think it ought to be the, the classical liberal political philosophy which animated the adoption of the 14th Amendment, not modern progressive New Deal political philosophy that has no root in the American Constitution whatsoever. Um, and using uh, due process, we recur to that. Whereas if you use privileges or immunities, the inquiry tends to become more historical. And, and it applies to things that aren't necessarily in the Bill of Rights, like habeas corpus and things, right? That, so, so I think that it, that, that ought, to, ought to comfort conservatives who are afraid that this opens the door for courts to invent new rights, that focusing on privileges or immunities asks, is this indeed, historically, has it been, is there a textual or philosophical groundwork for this being a privilege or immunity of American citizenship? No, to restate your point, Tim, and I think this is absolutely right, uh, if there is a concern about... Uh, uh, run amok courts under the privileges or immunities clause a fortiori there is under the due process clause because of course it is much more open-ended and indeed the history uh, demonstrates that because under that clause and its interpretation through the uh, under the 14th amendment we have had this nonsense like fundamental and non-fundamental rights different levels of judicial review and all the stuff that came out of caroline but, but of course, footnote four right but of course in all of this analysis it has to be kept in mind there's no way we're going to devise a constitutional doctrine that's going to prevent judges disposed to usurp from abusing their power. You know, there's the famous incident at the Virginia Ratification Convention when Patrick Henry gets up and says, oh, Congress is going to do all these nasty things, and Madison gets up and says, then do we have no virtue amongst us? For if not, we are truly in a wretched condition, right? At some point, you've got to depend on the people who are on the judiciary, and and you've got to depend on the philosophical flow of uh, in, in American society, which and means... aren't angels, after all. We, we need to focus back on these philosophical principles of individual liberty, and, and that's the only way to make the system work. I see Stuart Taylor back there, who's anxious to ask a question, so if he could be given the microphone, uh, we could hear from one of the leading uh, legal um, journalists in the country today. Thank you, Roger. Um, I'll, I'll ask my question of Doug Kendall first, but anyone else could answer it. Uh, I'm, I'm with National Journal. Um, Doug, if you win, if the court adopts your uh, interpretation of privileges and immunities, down the road, you've already said things aren't going to change overnight, but in due course, I assume you would hope this would influence legal doctrine and the way it evolves, not just the way it's articulated. What expansion of rights or what new rights would you hope to see coming along sooner or later uh, in this way? And would, uh, for example, same-sex marriage be one of them? Um, Stuart, I I think I have to go back to kind of what we've already said, which is that 
I mean, the main reason we're in this is because this is an opportunity to make the Constitution make sense again. I mean, this is this is about the Constitution's text and history more than it's about any outcome that's happened already um, or that's going to happen in the future. I think that the debate, as we've discussed, over the Constitution has been, um, you know, distorted in a really critical way because the centerpiece of the 14th Amendment was read out of the document by the Supreme Court 140 years ago. And if the court, um, you know, frankly, you know, if the court even recognizes that history without overturning Slaughterhouse, I think it would be a huge victory for the Constitution and this country. Um, so, so even if it doesn't get to the Pandora's box or opening up the can of worms, if it says, as a matter of text and history, um, that the 14th Amendment was intended to protect um, substantive rights um, and recognizes that the framers intended to do it through the Privileges or Immunities Clause, that is a huge victory for the Constitution, and it might not change anything about where the law is. Um, you know, I think that, to answer your question, um, the, you know, the I think we've all been talking about this history. I think the treatment of slaves and unionists in the South is really the core of what the framers were about. And I think you can look to that history both to, you know, support the line of fundamental rights rulings that the court has issued that starts with Meyer versus Nebraska and Pierce um, that, that are kind of these rights to heart and home, which are about, the, you know, kind of rooted in the treatment of the slave families. And so I think that rulings like Roe and Lawrence do draw support from the history of the Privileges or Immunities Clause and the history of the treatment of slave families. You know, beyond that, I think you look to the history. And then one thing that we you know, that we haven't really talked about, and, uh, but since we're, you know, the concern, I think, on the left for um, opening up the Privileges or Immunities Clause is that it will return us to the Lochner era. And I think, you know, in a court that issues rulings like Citizens United, that is a entirely valid concern. Um, I, I, I think the answer to it, though, is one, as we, Tim... We can only hope, Doug. As Tim, as Tim recognizes, one... The Privileges or Immunities Clause um, you know, is limited to citizens and not to corporations specifically. Uh, and two, you know, the history, there, are, there is an economic rights tradition in it. It's this kind of um, right, to, right to contract an individual's right to you know, earn a good living, a fair living for their um, labors and to contract. Uh, you know, it's some of the cases that um, Institute for Justice and other groups have brought on economic liberties claims I think are are powerful and rooted in the history of treatment of slaves and the freedmen after the history of the war. Uh, some of them, the you know, the idea that uh, we can't have laws, that Congress can't pass laws under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment um, to, you know, protect, um, you know, to, to protect laborers or protect workers from mistreatment, I think, is completely antithetical to the history of the 14th Amendment and should never be um, restored under the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Next question. Right here. Thank you. 
Thank you. Uh, I'm Brett Thomas with uh, the Cal Guns Foundation. Um, I actually have a historical question for uh, Tim Sandifer. Uh, presumably when the Supreme Court essentially eliminated the core of the 14th Amendment, uh, many of the men who had passed uh, those protections originally were still around. Was there much historical reaction? Did they recognize what happened, and was there any response to it historically? You know, so far as I know, surprisingly little at first. Um, of course, then in the in what was it, 1875, I think it is, in the debate over the Ku Klux Klan bill, then then there's a whole second round of discussions in Congress over what the Privileges or Immunities Clause was intended to mean back then and so forth. Um, but I haven't looked in, for instance, newspapers and magazines. I have not examined that, so I don't know the answer to that. Of course, remember that eight, this, the Slaughterhouse was 1873. That was the same year that the Supreme Court, relying on its decision in Slaughterhouse, held that um, that women had no right to uh, practice law and that, the, therefore, the state of Illinois could forbid Myra Bradwell from taking the, the, the bar exam. And it was, uh, what, two years, I think, before Cruikshank, which was the, the Colfax massacre case where the court said, again, relying on Slaughterhouse, that um, uh, the right to peaceably assemble uh, and the right to possess firearms and so forth uh, was not a federally protected right for purposes uh, of a case where uh, during one of the, in fact, the worst race riot during during the Reconstruction era, um, and therefore, you know, it was it signaled a general retreat from Reconstruction. That was, of course, felt by the President, Congress, everybody just backed away from Reconstruction and condemned the people of the South to another century of oppression by their state legislatures. So I think part of the reason why you wouldn't see much of a reaction is, remember, in the 1870s, the, the, the Republicans lost big time in the elections. And there was a huge backlash against Republicans, mostly for economic reasons. And Democrats then came into office very much opposed to enforcing Reconstruction. So I think that might be one reason why it, that would soften the outrage over, over the decision in Slaughterhouse, because it was only one among many such examples of the general retreat from civil rights protection. Yes, Tim, uh, the point that you mentioned about uh, the state of affairs in 1873 uh, is extraordinarily important. Don't forget, in 1866 to 68, it was the uh, heyday of concern about the South and Reconstruction. By 1873, the country was exhausted from Reconstruction. It was proving to be much more difficult to um, address the recalcitrance in the South, and uh, there is a sense in which the country really wanted to move on. Particularly in Louisiana, yes. in fact. In fact, I was just in New Orleans a couple week weeks ago. Did you know that there is a monument to white supremacy in New Orleans? It, it's been it's been covered up and moved away and everything like this to, to hide it. But it commemorates the whites only who died in a race riot in 1874 in New Orleans over the over the transfer of government power from the Democrats to the Republicans. I mean, it was it was an extremely dangerous, violent, tr troubling time. And I think that the feds at that point were pretty much willing to just say, look, we're, we're sick of, of trying to deal with this and we're just going to let we're going to let southern whites oppress southern blacks. And let's remember the slaughterhouse came out of what the court called a fetid stew of corruption in the city of New Orleans. How little things, how little things, and yeah, I think it was Huey Long, wasn't it, who said that when he died, he wanted to be buried in Louisiana so he could be, remain politically active. <laughs> Next question. In fact, it will be our last question because we're almost time to retire upstairs for 
wine and cheese. I wanted to add. Oh, yes, go ahead. uh, uh, Ilya mentioned, he said, reconstruction, if I might coin a term. I thought it was very interesting. I ran across a a speech, an 1859 speech given by John Bingham, who was basically the author of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. This is obviously before the Civil War. And in that speech, I I, I mentioned a passage from it. He says that the the rights of of pro-union and anti-slavery political activists in the South are being violated. And he said... uh, he believed that if the states did violate these rights, the people had, quote, sufficient cause for the reconstruction of the political fabric on a juster basis and with surer safeguards. And I think it's important to keep in mind that's why we use the word reconstruction to describe this era. It was an effort to, to change the federalist structure to protect individual rights against state governments. That was the whole purpose. And if we, if we start picking at, at some of the language and stuff and, and forget about that as being the crucial purpose of the 14th Amendment, then we're really we're missing the forest for the trees. The Indeed. whole reason for the amendment was to protect yes, yes. individual rights. That's right. Indeed, the, the great uh, task of the um, framers of the 14th Amendment was to fundamentally change federalism relationships in the country to provide for the first time federal remedies against against state violations of our rights, which hadn't been possible because of the um, city of Baltimore decision in 1833. And so um, when the majority, the slaughterhouse majority, dismissed that rationale, they surely could not mean to change federalism relations in the country, the majority said, that couldn't be further from the truth. That's exactly what they meant to do by the ratification of the 14th Amendment. Okay, do we, does either of you have anything to add to that? If not, we'll draw this to a conclusion. Thank you for uh, jo- uh, joining us, and uh, please give a warm round of applause to our speakers. <laughs>